everyone. This is your host, Manoj Tandon. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Securities, Security Confidential. You know, today we have a very special guest, uh, an extremely talented human being who spent many decades in the cybersecurity field, Mr. Joseph Steinberg. You know, Joseph is the author of Cybersecurity for Dummies. Um, if you haven't read it, go check it out. Uh, but, you know, he is the CEO of Secure My Social. Uh, when he's not writing books and he, and when he's not writing, uh, being CEO, he's involved in so many things. You know, he is he has advised the U.S. federal government. He has advised many businesses on topics and tech related issues with cybersecurity. He holds very advanced certifications in cybersecurity, CISSP, ISSAP, ISSMP, and CSSLP. So, um, Let's just say that he is uh, the man, all things cyber, and we're honored to have him here. Thank you, Joseph, for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that uh, intro. I hope I've earned it. So. Well, you, you have, and I, I, from what I understand, uh, you're one of a handful of people in the world that actually has uh, those credentials, all those credentials. Yes, I mean, I, I've spent a lot of time in this field, so I've worked on things that go wide and things that go deep. I've worked on the architecture side, the management side. So, you know, over years, you build different skill sets. And uh, hopefully today, you know, I can leverage all these different aspects in our conversation. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so, Joseph, what is your origin story? So how, how did this begin for you? You, you know? So I've always liked playing around with computers and trying to get them to do things that they weren't intended to do. Uh, when there are restrictions made, you know, how do those restrictions work? How do they prevent me from doing what I want to do? Are there ways around them? Uh, intellectual curiosity. Can I adopt a machine that ad adapt? I should say a machine that used to do X to do Y. Can I change its function? Can I get machines A, B, and C to work together, even if they weren't designed to work together? so that I can get a one plus one plus one equals 100 kind of benefit. Uh, so when you play around with these kinds of things, over time you develop an understanding of how machines work and how you can get around certain controls or what types of controls should be put in place uh, to prevent certain things from happening, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And that's sort of how I got into this field. And the rest is history. So you were always in computer science from day one? I was always interested, uh, you know, as a little boy, I wasn't officially a computer scientist, uh, but I was interested in computers and playing around with them and seeing if I could get them to do things that I wanted them to do, even if they weren't designed for it. Having taken such a deep dive into a host of different systems, is there something about system design or the QA process and software that surprises you or to this day that it may not have been addressed and should have been addressed a long time ago. Well, I'll preface my answer by saying that at this point, nothing surprises me. <laughs> okay. Um, because one thing that you learn over time in the cybersecurity field is that if there's a mistake that humans could potentially make, they're going to make it at some point. Mm -hmm. um, we make mistakes. We're imperfect. So no, at this point, nothing surprises me. The, the I'm sorry, because, you know, I'm a human, too, but we can be honest with ourselves. Uh, the yes. level of that stupidity that can exist in a human's mind is pretty bad. Uh, and human mistakes can be pretty bad. So 
Uh, if we say that human stupidity knows no bounds, that's probably quite accurate. Uh, so nothing surprises me. Uh, that said, I think we are making many of the same kinds of errors we were making 20 and 25 years ago. And for some reason, we still haven't figured out that the approaches that we've taken don't work. Um, you know, we keep trying the same thing over and over and it doesn't work uh, as a society. I've seen so much bad security advice uh, been spoken about on major, you know, television programs throughout major media for so many years. Um, and it's presented as if it's good advice, you know, and it's just the, the lack of understanding of how humans actually work, I think, has played a big role in that. Uh, so, you know, you're starting to see a change, but it used to be you'd see uh, security, quote unquote, experts telling you, you know, change all your passwords on a frequent yep. basis. Okay. And that's actually terrible advice, uh, be because if you're actually controlling the password changes, that means you're the one who's managing the passwords. And there's no way the human mind can remember uh, the number of passwords that we need to use on a daily basis if you're changing them frequently. So it almost guarantees, again, we're talking about someone who's managing their own passwords. Uh, it gu almost guarantees that they're going to reuse passwords or use terribly weak passwords. Uh, and you were probably better off with a strong password that you didn't change for many years. So, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff that goes on in our field where the theory is that one thing is better, but when you deal with humans, the reality is quite different. So, you know, g give me a, a top three. You gave one there, uh, and that's an interesting one, uh, where people are managing their own passwords, and that is ubiquitous. I, I'll say to this day, I, I guarantee you, most people are managing their own passwords. So, uh, oh, yeah. what some other pieces of gems that you've seen out there propagated as uh, good advice, but genuinely have not been good advice. Uh, so one of the other, let's call it practices that I've seen that is less than ideal, to put it mildly, is you have some entities that keep their backups connected to their main production systems in order to be able to do frequent backups. So uh, the backups will occur across a network or even in some cases, you know, USB drives plugged into equipment. And that is true. That allows for real-time backup, which has its advantages, right? You create a new file, it's immediately backed up. Uh, but some of those organizations don't have disconnected media as well. And what that means is if they get hit with a ransomware attack, the backups are likely to get corrupted Corrupt. along with the primaries. Uh, if I said that I have seen this rarely, I'd be lying. I've seen it more than rarely. Uh, and, you know, it may be getting better now, but it, these are the kinds of things where... You know, people were given the advice, you know, keep a backup connected at all times so you can back up in real time so you don't lose your data. And, you know, if your computer goes kaput, you know, you lose 10 minutes of work, not days or weeks. But the risks that we need to mitigate against today are different, right? It's true a computer could go kaput, but the reality is that the ransomware threat is probably a lot bigger than the fact that suddenly your, you know, solid state disk in your computer is going to completely fail, number one. And number two, you can have mechanisms to back that up that, that aren't attached to it constantly. You can back it up at the end of the day and disconnect. Uh, and my preference, of course, is to have some connected storage for backup and some not. Uh, but again, I've seen it many times where you find out after a ransomware attack, oh, yeah, we have many backups. Well, where are they? Oh, they're uh, they're on the network. Well, how, how are they connected? Oh, they're connected to every machine. And you're like, uh-oh. You know? So they, they've been... Uh 
encrypted. And you know, one of the things that's interesting there, if you look at um, ransomware actors, bad actors have gotten really wise with this too, right? They don't want dwell times to uh, go insane like they used to be. You know, the, the many years ago it was like two hundred plus days of dwelling. Now speed is king. You know, guy, these guys want in. They want to encrypt and uh, get their money. So, uh, so sometimes we joke that, yeah, because they want to make sure that they get their money before somebody else's ransomware hits the machine and then encrypts what they did and they can't <laughs> access it. Uh, <laughs> but but th that's, you know, maybe being a little facetious. Um, you know, th there's another thing going on with ransomware, which is that it's much better targeted now. Uh, so if in the old days, the good old days, we could call it, which isn't that many years ago, if ransomware got into a computer and immediately would trigger on you know the first machine or whatever and then as you said they started having delays where they look for better stuff because you know if you if you trigger on a machine where the owner doesn't really care if the data is lost they'll just wipe the machine and now they know there's a ransomware problem so they address it on you know they disconnect the machine they address it before it infects the uh crown jewels of the infrastructure uh so they created things that would look for more important data before triggering and that was actually quite effective uh, but as you said, now they can do it faster. So Symmetrical things... encryption, right? I mean, that's... But, but it's faster. The point is it's they can get... It's much faster. To... Right. They can get to things faster. They can find the crown jewels faster. There's better intelligence in how to do that. Uh, so the damage is much greater. And they also very frequently today profile the target. So they know what they can ask for, what a user is likely to pay, and what a user is likely... To be unable to pay so if they hit a small business they're not asking for a five million dollar uh you know ransom because they know the business can't pay them they have to ask for a number that the business is likely to pay yet if they hit a larger company they may ask for that larger sum so they, there's a lot of intelligence that's gone into ransomware uh in recent years again these are pros these are not uh you know people just looking around and you know fooling around and trying to figure out technology you know for curious reasons of being curious this is professional criminals so. So that's two give me one last one and then i got so many more questions to ask you about this but uh I, you know i wish there was only one other stupid well thing. you pick yeah. a favorite what comes to your mind <laughs> post-it notes with passwords on them oh in, man in, oh i'm not finished yet in areas where people go on television so what I'm dead serious. So it's one thing to have a post-it on your, you know, the back wall of your office with the password to something. It's another thing to be interviewed on live television with that post-it behind you on the wall, visible to everybody watching. And uh, I've seen that happen more than once. Uh, so I would say that that uh, reaches the level, as I said, that uh, if you hadn't seen it, you wouldn't believe it. But once you've seen it once, nothing is surprising anymore. I'll have oh, to yeah. look out for that on live TV and see uh, if people, I, I'm sure now that you bring it up, it's probably, again, you said something earlier. It's about how humans function and the lack of understanding of that. And and that's something I, I, there's a deep topic there and we'll touch on that in a minute because I think that leads to a whole bunch of rabbit holes uh, in, in our world, in this industry. But, uh, you know, looking at uh, cybersecurity, one of the things that we've seen is that, you know, you see the legislators and policymakers wanting to try and, and make an appearance of doing something about it. And one of the suggestions has been to hold the software developers themselves accountable for the breaches. What, 
what's your thoughts on do you think that'll make a difference what are, what are your thoughts on that well i haven't seen us hold our legislators accountable for the effects of their bad legislation which would be a <laughs> probably a much more uh beneficial thing to society uh, okay. than what they've been proposing uh, we have a few problems when it comes to legislation and cybersecurity. The first thing is that legislation is in this area is almost always reactive. Yes. So something happens, we see there's a problem, then legislators try to address it. And since this is a fast-moving target, right? Cybersecurity threats change, the actors change, the theaters change, the mechanisms change uh, so fast, and our legislative system is not designed to deal with things quickly. Uh, frequently, by the time anything gets done, it's either useless or counterproductive. The other problem that we have, and by the way, that's by design, right? In the U.S. Uh, legislative system, uh, as opposed to most Western democracies, for example, uh, we have a bicameral you know, structure. We have the House and the Senate plus the president, right? And by doing that, you can have different parties in control, which causes legislation to have to be um, more push towards the center, let's call it, right? In order to okay. get something passed, you're going to have to have the agreement in many cases of people from both parties. That slows down the process. It's intended to ensure that we don't pass bad legislation, right? If you have a single body legislature and your prime minister is the majority party leader, so, you know, when the majority party gets elected, they have a lot more power than uh, yeah. anybody, you know, individual election winner in the United States. So it's designed to make the laws better in the big picture, but it slows down the process. There's a lot more negotiation. That works well for a lot of things. It does not work well for cybersecurity. That's one issue. The second problem is that uh, if you look at the demographics of our legislative bodies, uh, especially the U.S. Senate, for example, uh, there are a significant number of people who don't really have a great understanding of technology as it exists today. Uh, I remember during the, the conversations about a decade ago about Hillary Clinton's emails, for example, there were senators who admitted they don't use email, right? So it's very hard to regulate things if you don't have a clue what you're talking about and you have no experience with it. And again, because technology changes rapidly, it's very hard for people who are you know, behind the times, and our legislators almost always are going to be behind the times, to really understand what needs to be done and what should not be done. And frequently this leads to legislators uh, using their experience in other areas as a basis for making legislation. And these things tend not to work and to be counterproductive. Uh, so I'll, I'll give you an example. Please. Uh, right now, for example, there are there's legislation pending in a bunch of different places related to uh, forcing providers of adult content to do age verification online, which at first glance sounds like it's very sensible. Yeah, uh, but Virginia the way is leading this one, right? Virginia implemented this, I think. There are some states here. There, there was uh, stuff in, in Europe and Australia looked into it. Uh, but the Australians were ahead of us. And one of the things they found is that, A, it doesn't work. Uh, and B, in many cases, it can even be uh, counterproductive. It creates privacy problems and security problems for the legitimate users who are using it. 
but you know the reason that it was chosen to pursue this is when we sell liquor right we require id when you go yep. into a movie that's rated r we check it in. but that's a very different scenario right that's where someone's there in person you can see that it's a person presenting the id you can see that it's a real id uh you can you can see a lot more about it you can't use a vpn to pretend that you're, you know, halfway around the world accessing something and not subject to the jurisdiction when you're going to buy liquor, right? It has to be delivered right. in person. So they've taken a model that worked in the physical world and tried to apply it in the technology world without really understanding the differences. Uh, and one of the reasons I worry about that, for example, is I think it can be counterproductive, right? If you announce to parents, hey, we've put in this great law that's going to control content on the internet so your kids will be safe. If that law doesn't work, you've probably created a situation where fewer parents are actually going to filter or do what they should be doing to protect their kids. And you could have a situation where more kids rather than fewer kids are getting access to, to things they shouldn't have access to. And you're creating a security and privacy problem for the people who are uh, legitimately accessing the stuff, never mind a potential national security problem. If somebody hacked the data and then found out, for example, that some politician is, you know, looking at certain things online that would make, cause a major scandal, right? You could have blackmail and things of that nature. Not that any of our politicians would do that. Of course but, not. Of course not. Um, but uh, I remember I'm from the New York area and we've had, uh, you know, our Anthony Weiner scandals and, and, and oh. that already so you know the, the point is that the, well, your attorney general <laughs> i'm sorry it's been your uh, former attorney generals uh, elliot spitz are also with a little bit of a different kind of scandal but yes <laughs> um you know and i'm sure these are not the only two in history I'm sure. right so right so so the the point is that sometimes you have well-intentioned laws but the legislators don't understand that the the way that technology functions in the real world um you know, even sometimes to understand the consequences. New Jersey, over a decade ago, passed a law that would have prohibited uh, all firearm sales in the state other than smart guns, once smart guns, meaning guns that could identify that the person pulling the trigger was the authorized party, would be available. Uh, again, it sounds like a really great thing, right? We're going to prevent right. kids from picking up a gun and shooting it if they're not the authorized user. Uh, but the only thing that that law effectively caused was that all the research into smart guns stopped because none of the gun manufacturers who would be the ones who would typically invest in something like this wanted to make all their other products illegal, right? So again, it's not understanding the way that the real world works. That law was ultimately changed. It took about a decade to do that. Uh, and now you have research resuming related to smart guns and you have products coming out that may save lives. So again, it's about the legislators not understanding the real world implications of what they're doing um, you know, trying to do something positive that ends up being negative. And I think those are two examples. And so when you talk about legislation, I always worry because my experience tells me that frequently the legislation actually is harmful, uh, not just not beneficial, but actually harmful when legislators try to step in and act in areas that they really don't understand. What you've described is so true which l leads to uh, a very basic question is that is cybersecurity really relevant? Are, are people just accepting that the inevitable may happen and we've done the best that we could and that's about all we can do? Um, well, I'll address that two ways. Um, every person on this planet is going to die 
but that doesn't mean we don't take precautions to try to increase the length of our life and the quality sure of our lives and it's the same thing you know there may be breaches but the the damage that happens from those breaches and the frequency of those breaches uh is you know highly uh dependent on how we behave before our cybersecurity hygiene can determine whether the consequences of a breach are you know horrific or trivial and forgotten shortly thereafter uh, so, the, you know, there is a lot we can do. That's number one. Number two, there is definitely fatigue. Uh, I blame a lot of it on people in my field who are crying wolf, for lack of better uh, terminology, going on, you know, TV and uh, radio interviews or in the press, you know, written press. And every time there's a breach saying change all your passwords. And this has been going on for decades already. If it's you don't tell people change all your passwords or spend a lot of time doing X after a breach that's not likely to happen or not likely to affect them, right? If the odds that they're going to get hit by lightning are higher than the odds that they're going to actually suffer damage from a breach, don't let them waste brain power on it. Because what ends up happening is whoever does spend their time dealing with it and changes the passwords find out that none of their friends did and nothing happened to their friends. So the next time when there is a significant breach that could affect them, they don't listen to you. Uh, so, you know, don't listen to the advisors. So my feeling is, you know, there's a lot of alarmist attitude uh, in, in my field, which is a problem. Uh, it's gotten better in recent years, but it used to be like every breach, you'd see some talking head talking about changing all your passwords. No, no, most breaches, you don't need to do anything and they'll have no effect on you. And the ones that do, in many cases, there's nothing you're going to do that's going to make a difference, right? If somebody stole your social security number for the 17th time, it's yeah. probably not going to have much of a difference in the fact that it was stolen the 16th time. Yeah. So just make sure you're not using that in a way that was going to be, you know, potentially damaging after, you know, if it wasn't damaging after the 16th, it won't be after the 17th, it, you know, in terms of your practices. There's not much you're going to be able to change. That's... Uh... Very well said and very well put. Thank you. Which, which, which brings us to uh, really cybersecurity is a, a, a people problem, but there is in our industry an absolute focus on the tech and the people side of it seems to not get an equal or greater level of importance. If you can modify behaviors, you can really impact cyber hygiene. If people can understand what's good, what's bad, similar to wash your hands after you go to the bathroom, you know, basic things. Why, I, why is I that? I agree. <laughs> what, why is this treated? Everybody wants tech. Uh, the, the, everybody wants tech, but nobody looks at the process that got them in the pickle in the first place. So I, I will tell you two things about this. Uh, if you look at my list of, uh, you know, I have an article to Enfiral called, you know, I think it's titles like 13 things you can do to improve your cybersecurity without spending a lot of money. Most of them are free, actually. Um, it's actually online, js.tc slash one three. So six characters, you know, six letters. Um, you can look at it. The number one thing I tell people, and it's by far the most important, and I've put out videos saying the same thing. If you believe that you are a target you behave differently than if you don't so if you own a business and you have not 
trained your employees where they know intellectually that they can answer a survey correctly, but you have gotten your employees to believe, to internalize that they really are targets. There are criminals who want to breach their devices and steal their data. That will have more of an effect on security than probably every technology that you're going to buy. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating to some extent, but the reality is I don't care what technology you buy. If your employees do not believe they are targets, somebody is going to social engineer them and you're going to have a problem. Uh, so I'm not saying not to use security technology. What I'm saying is that it's, it's not going to be effective. You're, you're still going to be breached if your employees do not internalize that they really are targets. Um, it's not education, right? Because education means, oh yes, I learned I'm a target. So when they send the survey around so that I get my bonus, I will check off, I am a target. I mean, believe it. People who are targets, when they get an email that says, you know, hey, you need to issue this wire out to X, Y, Z, they stop and think for a second. Hey, is this real? And it's that pausing for a second and thinking that can make a big world of difference. So that's number one. Uh, I think that that is a big issue. I also think we have a problem, and this is a general problem uh, across humans uh, all over the world, from what I can see, we, uh, when it comes to security, which is we tend to think of devices and visible, obvious things as delivering more value than things you don't see. Um, and, you know, when you go and let's say you go to the White House or you go somewhere, you know, in a secure building and people will point out, oh, you know, you see this guard booth and the guards are armed and they have dogs and they're checking bags and that. And we've come accustomed to that's what security is. It's the visible things. Uh, there's probably facial recognition systems there looking at people coming in, but you don't know that. So you don't think about that. Um, when you talk about, uh, you know, when there, there was a. a slew of, uh, you know, attacks on synagogues and from, you know, anti-Semitic yeah. people. At some point they're talking about, you know, should there be armed people inside, you know, to protect people. But again, that's not really the main way of protecting a building and the people in it. It's, you know, the fences around it, the, the cameras around it, the lights around it, police car outside as a deterrent. There's many things that are not as obvious as arms that, do a lot more. And I think it's the same in the cybersecurity world. And that's why people talk about tech, right? Oh, we bought the latest yeah. flashy, you know, gizmo and we that's have right. this system and that system and it does this. Yes, that's nice. But that may not be your biggest problem. Your biggest problem may be that you have users who don't believe that they are targets and they're downloading and going to websites that are going to infect them with malware. And maybe your anti-malware works 99% of the time, but the one time it doesn't, you've got a problem, right? Yep. So it's that visual cool looking stuff, right? It's those, the equivalent of the 10, you know, uh, people in, you know, uh, SWAT team suits standing there with uh, rifles and carbines outside of the building, keeping it secure. That looks secure. You're not looking at the cameras, the facial recognition systems, right. the, you know, panic buttons, the man traps, all the different techniques that could be in there to keep people secure that aren't cool or aren't, aren't obvious. And I think we that's one of the reasons why technology is always, you know, getting yeah. the cool end of the stick. It's hard to, also from a budgeting perspective, it's a lot easier to say, look, we had a million dollars for security and we spent it on this cool system and that cool system than to say, hey, we spent it on, you know, bringing in people and, and coaching people and training people and testing people. It just doesn't sound as cool. And unfortunately, the results are clear. Yes, they, they are 
there are, and we're going to link up to your article because that is just solid advice. And, and it's one that we've been harping on for some time is that everybody wants to talk about tech. We're like, well, but let's talk about how an event happens in the first place and all the behaviors that lead up to it. Right. And that, and that brings up, you bring up an interesting you know what, I'm, point. I'm going to add one thing there. And I think we should be blunt about this, right? I'm a New Yorker. I say it as it is. Say and it, please. Let's accept this about us, okay? We call ourselves intelligent life. I'm not sure that aliens would consider us to be too intelligent <laughs> considering what we do to ourselves. Sure. Um, you know, we've seen it in the news in recent weeks, right? What humans can do to themselves, uh, even most animals are not capable of doing such stupid and terrible things. But when you think about human brains, right, we have the same brain that our ancestors had a thousand years ago. It's the same brain. There is no change, right? It takes hundreds of thousands of years to evolve even small changes. What that means is that when a knight in the Dark Ages killed another knight and took that knight's armor and then showed up at the castle and said, I am Sir So-and-so, let me in. They were doing exactly the same thing as a phishing attack, just in a different venue. Sure. And the brain that's being tricked is the same brain that's being tricked today in a different venue. Humans, we are still human brain 1.0. Technology, every few months, there's a new generation that comes out. Think about how much phones have changed in 25 years. Think about oh. how much computers, right? You can't even compare. So the technology advances orders and orders of magnitude faster in capability than our human brain. We may know new things, but the brain, the CPU, is the same brain as 1,000 and 2,000 years ago. That's why we're the weak link, and we can't change that. We're going to stay the weak link because we can't, in, we can't evolve our brains to human brain 2.0 quickly like technology can. So if people think that technology is where the weak points are, uh, it's almost a form of ego because, you know, we're the idiots. Okay, let's just face it. We are intelligent compared to some forms of life. We're not too intelligent compared to AI, and we're certainly not uh, as advanced as we think we are. And I think we need to start accepting that, that, yeah, humans are the Achilles heel of security. You're absolutely right. But I think there's one thing there that you said that uh, we, I don't have a good solution of how to implement it, but I think it could work towards making huge strides. And that's if we could make the problem of cybersecurity tangible for the average person, right? That's the thing. It's almost like... Um, no one thinks they need cops until they get robbed, right? Then they're like, oh, I know why we're funding this. You know, it's right. No, it's because like it became tangible. System. It became tangible. So right. how do we make it tangible? And I, and I don't have uh, an offering that I could say I know exactly how to do this is why I'd be doing it right now. But that is something that could change people if we could bring it home to them in some way. Well, first of all, I think if you and I solve this on this podcast, we'd probably be up for a Nobel Prize yes. um, if there was an actual <laughs> solution. But I think there's an inherent problem that we can't solve, which is, again, going back to history, right? So 200 years ago, our ancestors, and by our, I mean, I don't care where they were on the planet, and we probably had ancestors all over the planet, right? They all taught their children, do not play with fire. Yes. Right? Okay. They told their children, do not run in the middle of the road where the horses or the camels or the elephant. It doesn't matter what animal people were riding. Whatever animals, don't run in the middle of the road, okay? And then when cars came out, don't run in the middle of the road, right? There were certain things that humans all over the world have taught their children in terms of staying safe because these things have worked and the people who didn't 
teach their kids, right? Those kids got killed and evolution selected, <laughs> right? The people who, who did protect the kid. You know, don't play with the saber-toothed tiger, right? Yeah, Stay away up. from it, okay? You can play with that, you know, uh, domestic kind of cat, but not with that lion, right? These kinds of things over time, human society came up with very clear rules, and it doesn't matter where you are on the planet, right? Societies that had no interaction with each other, uh, you know, even, you know, let's say going back 100 years, societies that had no interaction, they had similar security and safety things that parents were teaching their children about many fundamental things, right? Yeah. Don't go places with strangers. Okay. You can't do that for cyber because the dangers keep changing so fast that the things that I would teach my children today, those will still be important to teach a generation from now, but there'll be so many new things that you can't come up with a list right? People can't learn from their parents or from their teachers in school how to stay cyber secure and use that knowledge for the rest of their lives the way they can with fire, right? It's just much harder to stay current. And that's part of the problem. I'm not sure we can do that because even if we could do it today and make it tangible, the risks of tomorrow are not tangible and people still need to address that. Think about social media, right? 20 years ago, nobody spoke about the risks of social media because it didn't exist. Right. Right. And now all of a sudden there are many, many things related to that. 20 years ago, nobody was worried about Chinese apps being put on kids' computers, right? Now it, it's an issue. Uh, you know, the risks change as the technologies advance. And part of the problem is people need to learn that we're, we as humans are not used to the fact that there can be fundamental dangers to us of a catastrophic nature that we didn't learn from our teachers or our parents as children. Uh, that's just a new thing that now exists in the world that we really didn't have as humans uh, before at all. And so that that's part of the problem. Even if you made it tangible, well, we, you and I would make tangible. It's not going to help in 20 years. Agreed. So what is your mission then at Secure My Social? What are you guys doing? So Secure My Social is a business that has technology that actually can warn people if they're making social media posts that are problematic or leaking data, um, which today is kind of a I mean, problem. that's going to be every teenager that is in the United States. I, I think it's probably every person that uses social media, but that's uh, maybe <laughs> I'm less optimistic than some, but there's plenty of other things going on. But that that's one thing uh, that I'm involved with. And I actually today I spend most of my time actually serving as an expert witness on cybercrime cases. Uh, so they're, you know, this, the corollary to our politicians not understanding cyber issues is that when there are thefts or there are crimes, uh, frequently it's very difficult for juries and judges to understand what really happened and who really should have done things differently. Um, and they, both sides in a case will typically bring in people to try to explain uh, these types of things to both judges and juries, uh, whether it be criminal or civil, uh, because sometimes these things are A, complicated and, and you know, not they're not black and white decisions, right? They, you know, sure. there's a breach. There's, uh, you know, a provider and a user. And the user made a mistake, but the provider should have stopped the problem anyway. And there's a third-party service. And there's a fourth party, you know, managing the networks. And this 
company was brought in to do an audit and they didn't find the problem, right? It can be very complicated to figure out who caused what and who's responsible for what, especially when you start throwing in federal laws and state laws and international laws when the party's overseas. So it can be quite interesting. And, you know, the good thing about what I'm doing today is I have helped people who are wronged uh, recover funds and uh, in some cases have also been able to uh, help punish parties that were looking the other way on crimes that in the end were funding either, uh, you know, organized crime, child traffickers, drug traders, and terrorists. So, uh, you know, these are the parties, the, the, the people who are making the most money off cybercrime today are the worst people in the world. Let's leave it that way, because it's there's so much opportunity. If you're a country under sanctions, sanctions can't affect stuff over the Internet. So they all get involved in cybercrime and money laundering. Uh, so, you know, stopping these types of things is not just a matter of protecting the innocent. It's, it, you know, in terms of people's money, it's also stopping all sorts of terrible things that happen when, you know, rogue regimes or organized crime or terrorists get money. Yeah. And that those guys aren't going to stop anytime soon. I mean, there's no incentive and it's really very, it's just not enforceable. I mean, it's just not. You're not going to be able to stop the North Koreans from stealing cryptocurrency, but you're going to, you can make it that parties that don't enforce uh, rules uh, strictly that would have stopped some of the crimes, uh, you know, you can incentivize those entities to be stricter, and that might reduce the amount that the North sure. Korean regime has taken. For those who are not familiar, the North Korean regime is at present believed, uh, and this is not my belief, this is the belief of the essentially the entire West. Uh, the White House has said the same thing. Uh, they are the number one stealers of cryptocurrency online. Um, a significant percentage of all crypto that's Stolen online is stolen by the North Koreans as much as potentially close to half. Uh, and they use it to help fund their nuclear program. So uh, at least as of last year, the money that they were stealing online uh, was about 10 times the size of their legal exports. Okay, wow. so just to put things in, in perspective, they've been a little over 100 million well, they... exports and stealing over a billion dollars a year in crypto, a significant percentage of which the White House has acknowledged is going to fund a nuclear program. So when we stop these cyber crimes, we're not just protecting innocent people's money, we're stopping really bad parties from doing really bad things. That's, uh, I did not know that that, that statistic was that large. And uh yeah, you're right. I mean, we can affect some of the controls that surround North Korea or any other regime for that matter, or any other bad actor set, like uh, people initiating ransomware attacks from uh, inside the Russian Federation. The FBI is not going to be able to arrest those people <laughs> ever. I mean, no, no, we're not going to be able to get to the parties yeah. who are committing the crimes, but there are parties that are in our reach that I don't want to call our facilitating. Some of them may be facilitating, but some of them may be looking the other way because by having more lax rules, uh, they make more money or they're processing transactions they shouldn't be processing because they're getting commissions or what have you. Uh, there's a case now involving the federal government, uh, which they've accused certain parties of helping facilitate, for example, $8 billion of activity with Iran uh, occurring online in violation of sanctions. These are real numbers, right? That's a lot of money and a lot of transactions uh, that could do a lot of really bad things. 
Uh, but at the same time, the parties that process them may have made a lot of money doing it. So they have an incentive sometimes to look the other way. And so I think cracking down on the parties that are allowing this to happen, it won't solve the problem, but it may reduce the amount that these uh you know, evil regimes uh, obtain. And as I said, it's not just evil regimes. It's also criminals, human traffickers, uh, child traffickers, drug dealers. Uh, remember, online has made their world much easier. They don't have to go through the banking systems. Uh, they don't have to physically be present where they're committing crimes. Uh, you know, and if you're in North Korea and you're under sanctions, it's going to be kind of hard to physically commit a crime in the U.S., but it's a lot easier to do it online. It, it absolutely is. So we're down to the last couple of minutes here, Joseph. I wanted to give you a chance to plug anything that uh, you'd like. You know, do you got any, are you making any appearances, any new books coming out, any uh, talks, whatever you'd like to let the audience know about. The floor is yours. So, uh, I, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. So I do write my column, uh, which is on my website. I don't write news, right? I write things that I want people to know that I don't think they're hearing. So, you know, if there's a news story about a breach and everyone's saying change your passwords and I don't think you need to change your passwords, I'll say that. Uh, but it's really my opinion on different things. And I've been talking about some of the dangers, for example, uh, that AI has. I think the dangers that we're talking about are the wrong ones. Uh, they're the ones that may be best for uh, media to talk about because they're topics that are, uh, you know, full of controversy and rile people up. But I think the bigger dangers are the ones we're not discussing. Uh, which I've talked about in a few recent talks and I'll be writing about in detail over the next few weeks. Um, I think there are other topics. I've, you know, I've spoken about the impact on jobs that we're ignoring from self-driving trucks, which will affect us much more than self-driving cars in the near term. Uh, you know, there's millions of people in the United States, for example, whose income depend on the the long distance trucking industry, yep. moving goods across the country. Uh, and that's going to be one of the first things that gets replaced because it's the easiest drives and it's got the best return on investment because it's, you know, you could drive 24 by seven instead of driving and having people sleep eight hours. So, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of things that are going to be impacted by technological change uh, that I do tend to talk about. So you can go to josephsteinberg.com or if you prefer short codes, js.tc, josephsteinberg.totallycandid. It will take you to the same site. Uh, the Cybersecurity for Dummies book is now in its second edition. It's actually in several languages. Uh, the book has done quite well. And again, I, I think I will admit that I'm a dummy when it comes to a lot of these things. We've all made mistakes on cybersecurity. I've seen Nobel Prize winners literally make mistakes on you know cybersecurity matters. And part of it is, because, as I said before, we're not educated on this in school. I was not taught cybersecurity in school. And even if you're young enough that you were, by the time you finish school and you you know get your first job and move into that job and enter you know an adult life, the rules have changed, right? The dangers have changed. So it, it becomes this constant cycle and you do want to stay up to date on, you know, major trends and, and things like that because it can affect you. But again, that number one thing, if you believe you're a target, you'll behave differently. And I promise you, whoever you are who's listening to this, you are a target because everybody has data that's valuable. And if you want to know how valuable that data can be, because you think you don't have anything, I'll leave you with one thought. Please. Somewhere. In the United States right now, there are children oversharing data on social media about all sorts of things. One of those children 
may become the president of the United States. Some will be senators. Some will be judges. Maybe it's 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Some of them will be ambassadors. Some of them will be military leaders. Sure. If a foreign government is collecting all this data, which, of course, even if it's encrypted, will be decryptable by then because the capability will be there, right? uh, you know, quantum, et cetera. But it's, most of it's not encrypted. It's being overshared. I don't know how that data is going to be used, but it, it, I don't want to, you know, it's going to be a big problem because uh, the oversharing is going on and people say, oh, it's just my teenage kid doing that. But somebody's teenage kid is going to be the president and somebody's teenage kid is going to be the chief justice of the Supreme Court. And we don't know the value of our data. That's my point. You do not know the value of your data because you only know what it looks like now and you only know what the world looks like now. But the future is coming. And it's not a question of, will there be someone who's a future president who's oversharing? There will be. We just don't know who it is. Who it is. And since storage is cheap, they're storing everything. So just remember that. If your data is breached, maybe it's not used against you now, but maybe it's used against your kids in 20 years. Very sound advice. It's been a pleasure, Joseph, having you here. Uh, and we barely scratched uh, a host of topics that we could discuss. So we would... Look forward to having you back sometime, but thank you so much for a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much.